Hello and welcome back to Taming the Titans, a new podcast from human rights organization Article 19. I'm Emily Hart, and in this, our second episode, From Big Tech to Giant Tech, we'll be looking a little deeper into the murky world of social media companies and the gargantuan power they exercise over our online lives and our human rights. We'll particularly be looking at regulation and talking about whether the models currently emerging in Europe can work elsewhere, given the radically different factors at play in different contexts. Today, we're joined by Carolina Botero and Dr. Lisa Luftal-Gormsen. I'll be asking them how power ended up so concentrated online, what the consequences are, and how the huge companies which gatekeep the internet might be brought down to size, or even brought to the table to talk about their human rights impacts. Carolina is a researcher, lawyer, writer, and executive director of the Colombian digital rights organization, the Charisma Foundation. Lisa is director of the Competition Law Forum at the British Institute of International and Comparative Law and advisor to the International Competition Network, appointed by the UK Competition and Markets Authority. She has also launched class action lawsuits against Facebook in the UK. The internet was born free, open and inclusive, a multi-layered, multi-directional, interactive network surrounded by ideals about horizontal communication and global connectivity. But we have seen extreme accumulations of corporate power at various layers of its infrastructure, from hardware, cables, routers, switches, right up to payment systems and lines of code. These accumulations are clearest at the level of our gateways to the internet, search engines, social platforms, web browsers and apps. For most of us, search engines and social media are our entry points to the internet. For many of us, they're also our final destination a lot of the time. Very few of us are now typing in website addresses into browsers from memory. Most of us are simply Googling or just opening applications. The lack of regulation or competition enforcement, which we talked about in episode one, has created a situation where just a few companies now hold the keys to the internet. Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram, Alphabet, which owns Google and YouTube, Twitter, and the perhaps lesser known China headquartered and Cayman Islands Incorporated ByteDance Limited, which owns TikTok. Google's search engine, for example, has more than a 90% share of the search market worldwide and is the most visited website on the internet. It processes around 100,000 searches per second, and its most searched keyword? Facebook. The second and third are YouTube and Amazon. The sixth most Googled word is the word Google. These figures don't even account for mobile phone usage, or those of us just going straight to applications and skipping browsers and search engines entirely. But the picture is very similar. Companies like Meta now have annual sales in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Alphabet is now valued at well over $1 trillion. Big tech is now wielding more budget than entire countries. So a handful of companies keep a vice-like grip on our communication services, acting to crush competition and consolidate their hold on the market. So what? Well, classically, a lack of competition in the market can cause high prices and usually decreases quality and innovation. But in this case, these services are still free, at least free of monetary charge for the user. What companies are able to dictate are not prices, but terms of service without accountability or transparency. Our freedom of expression, our privacy, the use of our data and the treatment of the content we create and receive. Billions of us spend hours a day on these platforms, exercising our right to speak and our right to know. 
So our human rights are profoundly affected by what the execs at these companies dictate. Whether you live in a country where hate speech has alchemized into physical violence, or you've had your own content deleted, or you're just scrolling through your feeds or search results with no way of knowing who decides what you're seeing or how those decisions are made. It's often algorithms, optimised for profit maximisation, which decide what is or is not allowed in public discourse online, how many people see it and where. Not just what you can post and who sees it, but also something known as exposure diversity, which means what comes up on your feed and what doesn't. Those algorithms are designed to keep our attention, to keep us active on the platform for as long as possible, so that they can learn more about our behaviour, gather more data, make more sophisticated behavioural predictions, and therefore place more and more effective advertising in front of us. Though these platforms have billions of users, we aren't the real customer, not as far as making a profit goes. The customer is the company which buys our data and pays for advertising space, making us, our content, and the time we spend on these platforms an unwitting product. It's an economy driven by attention-grabbing, rather than high-quality, content. So content which sits at political or emotional extremes is bumped up and promoted within our various feeds. Content moderation, meanwhile, is chronically underfunded and unaccountable, especially in places, cultures or languages outside of priority markets. Basically, we're being bombarded with low-quality content designed and curated to encourage massive and often compulsive use of social media platforms to keep us online and to keep us scrolling, rather than high-quality content which might inform us or enrich our lives or minds in any way. And I'm not talking about us as a group. I mean each of us as individuals, depending on our data profiles. So we're all being shown something different, something tailored to our own data footprint, tailored to keep us online to maximise our engagement. Advertising has long been a supplement for the provision of public goods, ads on buses or in the mainstream media, but never before have those ads dictated so massively the information we receive. The lack of market competition means that companies don't even have to behave in a way they think their users will like. Users will likely stay regardless, and even when an exodus does occur, numbers often bounce back pretty shortly afterwards. What this amounts to is a form of digital-era media concentration, bottlenecks in the information flow and reduced diversity of viewpoints. The capture of advertising revenue by these social media and search engine companies has also taken revenue from traditional media, who are struggling to adapt their profit models. News media has seen huge budget cuts, folding outlets and falling quality, some even forced to compete with clickbait and sensationalist content. Though the men at the helms of these companies often claim to care about human rights, including freedom of expression, for example, Twitter's owner and CEO Elon Musk is a self-proclaimed free speech absolutist, the executives who run these companies are men who are unqualified, uninterested, or both in maintaining freedom of expression, privacy, and other human rights. Even when real scandal hits, like Cambridge Analytica or the revelations of Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen, they most often respond with empty displays of contrition or with cosmetic changes to the services. Sometimes, often when obliged to or in response to huge outcry, these companies do respond to human rights violations in which they are complicit or bear some responsibility. But these actions often deepen the lack of accountability rather than alleviate it. They are actions which don't relate to any systematic approach or integral policy. Actions which seem utterly arbitrary, 
are inconsistent across platforms or for which the underlying principle is unclear. But the thing is, it doesn't actually matter whether or not these guys are qualified or interested. Our human rights should never be contingent on one man, even if these companies were run by the ideal candidate or candidates. What we need are human rights compliant systems, independent and rigorous rulemaking, and consistent, transparent enforcement of those rules, with safeguards and mechanisms in place for when we need to appeal or review those rules, or the way they're implemented. But that is not even close to where we're at. The power currently held by single companies and even single people is dangerous for human rights, for media plurality and for democracy. So we need to redistribute that power. Competition law offers us one way to do that, particularly when applied to these gatekeepers of the internet, pro-competitive rules can bring fairness and openness, loosening the grip of dominant companies on the online world and giving us some options, giving us some power back. But taking a competition-focused approach when it comes to regulating social media companies, there are a lot of complexities, a few of which will be unravelling in the upcoming episodes of this show. One of the central complexities is the network effect. Nobody is going to abandon, for example, Facebook in order to join a social network which has only a few users, on which they can't interact with anyone they know, or with content from outlets that they want to read. There are a lot of ways around this, and this is where ideas like unbundling of hosting and content curation and interoperability come into play. The idea that you could pick and choose the elements of your social media experience. You could have an Instagram profile, but choose another entity to do your content curation. Given these services are currently bundled, i.e. integrated and offered together on platforms, unbundling would diminish the market power of dominant platforms and decentralise and diversify the landscape of content curation services, meaning you have more control over what you see on your feed and what you don't. There's more than one precedent here. This was actually done in the 20th century with trains. Bigger networks were obliged to let smaller railways and destinations join onto their networks, forming interoperable parts of their services. Something pretty similar happened with telecoms. In many countries, there was just one telecom company, state-owned, but the regulator came in and wholesale and retail were unbundled and other operators were given access to the infrastructure. So what's the solution to this century's monopolies? Let's get into it with today's experts. Hello and welcome, Carolina and Lisa. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thank you. Hello, thanks for inviting us here. Thanks for coming on. So Lisa, these dominant social media companies we're talking about, how are they different from other monopolies historically? They're different in the way that these companies are global companies. They are everywhere. So when you think about the reason why the Sherman Act was enacted in the US, for example, that was due to the American monopolies in the US at the time. So that was localized to the U.S., whereas now you have these platforms and they are global firms. And that is probably the difference, mm. the main difference. There are many other differences, but that's probably the main difference, yes. Right. Carolina, how do you see this? Yeah, I would say the fact that they are big uh, multinationals and, and are bigger even than many states provides them with a lot of, of power. The tools they are providing are able to empower a lot of freedom of expression, but it is a big dilemma what we are facing now, one that put us in a in a bad position where we have the strongest tool for freedom of expression, but it's um, captured by big monopolies as well. Mm, I mean, these are some of the biggest, most profitable companies ever to exist. 
and they're so dominant in some of the markets they exist in. So how have they been treated differently from companies historically by governments and by regulators? It is different because they are not immediately subject to the national state. So for instance, big companies such as mining companies or even telcos, they are under the concessions, the contracts that the government gave them. So that provides some sort of power from the government to the companies, whereas these ones are much bigger and they even claim that they are not subject to the jurisdictions of many of the small countries as they do not operate, are not um, incorporated in our countries. I think this is uh, one of the main issues that we're facing. But again, that also has its, its good point. For instance, in many countries with autocratic governments or things like that, the fact that they are not subject to them sometimes provide them a certain power of operation that otherwise would not be able. Mm. But of course, uh, it comes with its problems, right? Yeah, if I may come in here, governments around the world, it has taken them a bit of time to wake up to understand uh, how to deal with these companies because of their sheer scale and because of the jurisdictional issues and because it's something that is systemic and therefore you would rather want the competition authorities around the world to move in the same directions at the same time. And that has proven to be a difficult exercise. And now we see that in Europe, that the European Commission has moved forward with the Digital Markets Act, the DMA. And I think that although there's been discussions around the world, uh, C, the US, Asia, Europe, Nordic country, we're all discussing this, uh, the UK as well, I think that the European Commission has a first mover advantage in this space in the fact that the DMA is has now come into force. I think there's a, a big question. Why now? These companies have been accumulating power within their markets and within society for a whole reasonably large number of years in plain sight. They've been acquiring other smaller companies. They've been behaving in in ways that I think are quite clearly anti-competition. So what has taken so long? Well, I, I can speak on what has happened in Europe and perhaps Carolinas can explain what's happening in, in, in South America, but at least in Europe, what has happened is that we had an e-commerce directive from 2000 where they were exempt from that. Hmm. And that needed updating. And therefore, in that discussion, should we incorporate them in that directive? And then in the UK, uh, all of this came about uh, because the former Chancellor of Czechos, Philip Hammond, he launched a review into the platform's impact on the UK economy in 2018. And what followed from that review uh, was the expert report from Professor Jason Furman and his expert panel. And, and that kind of kickstarted the debate quite a lot. And then you would have seen uh, reports uh, issued from all over the world, really, uh, kickstarted the debate. So when you ask what really started this, I probably think it was the time was ripe for this but also because nothing had really happened. There hadn't been any initiatives and we were debating for some time whether 
antitrust enforcement was well equipped to deal with these or whether one should have regulation. So the debate about ex-anti regulation versus ex-post antitrust enforcement was going on for some time. We obviously have moved on from that and said, you know what, we need regulation in this space. And also because antitrust, ex-post antitrust enforcement and ex-anti regulation are mutually exclusive. So in terms of the harms that these companies present, you know, particularly around hate speech, incitement to violence, has a growing public awareness or even awareness among policymakers fed into this? Was there just a naivety before? I think that the, the discussion also needs to look again into the into the bright side of the internet, which is freedom of expression. And I totally understand the discussion that there is in Europe and the US around the damages or the impact that has had this kind of companies on issues such as hate speech and, and disinformation. But the problem is probably broader. Of course, the size of the companies uh, represent a big problem to the to how to control them or how to impose regulations. The regulation is different in our side of the world. And uh, for us, I, I'm not sure DSA or the or the way that Europe is dealing with this is the perfect world either. I don't even think it's a good model to follow uh, unless we have more more information. There are lots of studies, research on how content moderation, the problems with it in Europe, US, etc. It is not the same in our countries. Uh, rules are applied different in big markets and in the small markets, and we don't have that information. What we are talking now with hate speech and disinformation is basically how to regulate legal content, which is a complete different issue from a, from a juridical perspective. Moreover, hate speech in certain conditions, it's a, it's an illegal content, but not always. And this information is, it, it also, it is in a, this gray area that is difficult. Um, I think that we, we are still lacking the global discussion if we are in front of global companies on how to deal with it. I'm not sure that the way, I mean, if we, we are starting to see the, the way that Europe and US are going to regulate companies as a model, a role model, we will need more discussions because in countries like Colombia or in general Latin America, we will import these regulations with the good and the bad. And there are lots of bads too. Right. So let, let's have a look at the DMA on its own terms, on European terms, and then maybe look at what will be needed for it to be used as a template outside of that jurisdiction. So, so Lisa, what are the benefits and, and drawbacks of the DMA in terms of keeping these powers in check? Yeah, that all goes to implementation, of course, because right now we have a framework regulation, I would call it, where we have, you know, you need to be designated as a gatekeeper first. That's the first step. And then insofar you're designated as a gatekeeper, you then have some prohibitions in Article 5 and 6. And they are fairly broad brush for the very fact that these tech platforms has vastly different business models. So, which is an important point, but it depends on how the European Commission will implement this. And there will be teething problems because every time you have a new regulation, there are teething problems. And therefore it only time will show how good 
or not good it is. So I think the jury is out and I think I need to preserve judgment as to, you know, how good it is, how good is it not. If, if you make a comparison to what has been suggested in the UK, which recognizes that these business models are very different and therefore uh, we, we don't call it gatekeeper in the UK, we call it companies with significant market status, but nevertheless, it's, it's more or less the same. You then have a specific code of conduct, which is specific to the individual company and their business model. Europe has not decided to go down that route, but I think only time will tell how efficient this regulation is. I do fear, however, that there might be quite a lot of litigation on the national level within the EU, because do remember we are 27 different countries within the EU. There are different interpretations of the regulation across the EU. And I think that would be rather unhelpful. So training at the member state level will obviously be hugely important. I think there's another question to be asked here in, in terms of sheer resources. People I've spoken to have said that the, you know, the EU Commission, the salaries they're offering are not comparable to the salaries offered to lobbyists for big social media platforms. And that's in Europe. So outside of Europe, having a piece of regulation in contexts where maybe regulators are not as well resourced, are not as well equipped, or even are not as independent. And that could cause other challenges as well. Carolina, what do you think about that? Maybe you believe this is, this is a model that can be imported in our countries, then the, the issue of resources, independence and so on arise and it's not as easy and it might even be, it might even kick you back, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, then you are easily providing a system of control to states that might not deserve it. Not only autocratic states, you know, problematic states. Before and after the pandemic, Latin America was crossed by lots of social uprising. And one of the main things was the use of the different governments of the terrorist frames and, and allied frames of control of speech for that, which is more or less the same that it has been reason. Of course, we all want to fight against terrorism. But then the point is, when you overuse it, you end up having distrust governments with powers to control speech. This is one of our main concerns, but uh, this is if you even think of importing. Let's say in the meantime, while we do not import these norms, but uh, they are in place like they are in Europe, there is another uh, problem for countries in the global south, which is that companies are global, as we were speaking before, so they tend to apply the content moderation rules in a global scale. And they will do it what is less expensive for them. So while in the, in Europe, they will have a full system with check and balances and everything. It is not like companies will do a, a different size for every country, but they will do the one size when in our countries, there will be no check and balances. So of course, this is something that is theoretical, but it's something that we, we've seen before. For instance, Bolsonaro, before the elections in the U.S., while Bolsonaro was speaking, the, the president of Brazil was, of course, doing this information on COVID. He was, his content was blocked. Trump was placed with a, 
a note and be aware he might be saying, sending this information because it's different the way the rules apply in different places. And this is not something new, let's say. Yeah, I think I think another thing to add to that is that the rules don't apply often because the rules aren't clear or because there aren't rules. I mean, on, on Twitter, for example, former president Donald Trump was removed from the platform. After that, yeah. And then evidence arose that his Twitter account had been highly relevant in the insurrection on the 6th of January. After that evidence arises from a bipartisan committee, Elon Musk runs a Twitter poll as to whether or not to reinstate Donald Trump and then does. So when we talk about rules, there are a lot of issues at hand. So what kind of harms have those caused that you two have come into contact with? The problem is that in many countries where the social networks had become really key media, key platforms for expression, and therefore uh, the content moderation situation, it's, it's much more felt than in other places when you silence someone. One of the consequences of over-removal, for instance, in, in the, in, under certain circumstances, means that civil society, human rights defenders, etc., are the main ones to suffer. Because, uh, of course, if we're talking about Bolsonaro or Trump, everybody will speak whether they were left or not within a platform. But if you're talking about certain other groups, such as journalists or so on, it's much more diffuse. And uh, what we've seen in a specific context is that over-removal of content ends up with society missing key contents such as those that um, offer uh, proof of important human rights abuses. So I, I do understand the issues of politicians and those are the ones that we would we discuss more. But it is not the only impact. And I would say that in countries like ours, the over-removal affects much more other groups. And it has been proven in during social uprisings, during um, yeah, moments of special distress and violence. So in a, in a functioning market where these companies are brought into competition, we would have an option to leave, an option to compare terms and conditions and pick ones that serve us or that we see as democratic or or at least user-friendly. Is that utopian thinking or is that where we're headed? That's probably utopia thinking, I would say. <laughs> terms and conditions in and of themselves are very complicated. Mm. And that's not just the big tech platforms, that is all companies, small and large. So I do think that there is a bit of a symmetry between those companies, their terms and conditions, and what the end user understands with these terms and conditions. And in the ideal world, uh, users are voting with their feet, and if they don't like things, they can move away. But it depends on, it, it comes down to market definition in a way that is there any good alternatives? Because do you think that Snapchat, if, if, if you don't like the terms and conditions of Snapchat, do you then move on to Twitter? If you don't like the Twitter, do you then think uh, Facebook is the alternative to that? And if Facebook is not the alternative to that, is that then TikTok? I mean, 
you know, who are in the same market, and, and because all of these uh, tech platforms are, are very, they are offering something very unique and very different. And, and why we talk about that they are massive and they're global and they're big. They have also brought a lot of great innovations to the market and they have connected people around the world. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom. What I do think is that we need some proportionality into this equation because there is this asymmetric relationship now between the users and the platforms because they've become so big. So I think what we really need now with regulation is trying to re-establish some proportionality where we simply say that the asymmetric relationship between these two parties are just too big. So we need some proportionality into the equation. I I completely agree with Lisa on this point, of course. I would just add on that that... uh Probably the, the reason we like these companies is because they are this, the services of these companies better is because they are so big that they re- truly connect everyone in the world. And um, my main concern or many of us and our main concern is uh, the pressure for, of governments to use content moderation in the hands of, the, of, of a private company that is so big to continue to stress that, mo- that model that is on its own problematic, uh, looking at it from a human rights perspective. So that is my main concern, and uh, and I'm not sure I even have the answer, right? Uh, it is so problematic and yet so needed that it is still very, very early, and it will only be time that will allow us to think if there are even other alternatives. We are in a very interesting times anyway. <laughs> It is interesting times, isn't it? And and I mean, our economy is digital. We are moving to a fully digitalized economy where data is the pinnacle of that economy. And whoever had a business model that was born digital rather than analog and having to move to digital definitely have a huge advances in such an economy. And it is precisely because of that that the impact is different in, in different parts of the world because when you are in the global north, I'm not going to say that you do not have digital divides because you do, you do have, right? But it is much smaller digital divides and therefore impacts are different. In the global south, digital divides are bigger and not just connectivity. One, one problem, for instance, is that in Colombia, for instance, most of the people connect themselves through cell phones and they pay on something that we call prepaid. So there are data caps. And we have on top of that, we have zero rating. And on top of that, we have uh, the most of the cell phones, the smartphones that people use are very cheap smartphones. So you end up having a big group of people that appear as connected in, let's say, the statistics but they are being connected in bad quality with bad devices, they are not accessing the internet we are accessing. So this, um, just to make uh, the point when, when Lisa was saying, it's a to, on utopia to think on, on competition as a way of, out of this problem, is imagine this person, this user, he cannot just choose any app. The app he chooses will be the app he will use because just his phone will not handle more than few apps. Therefore, he's really picky on which is the app he uses. 
and that person also will use the app that most of his family use, his business, and if it's iterating, that will be the one he uses. So you end up having a market that reinforces the monopoly. I'm actually based in Colombia and I've got one of these plans where I can, I have a certain number of data of gigabytes and I have unlimited Facebook, Twitter, and WhatsApp. WhatsApp. Which of course means that I use, you know, two of those services are owned by the same company, Meta. Um, and that means that when I run out of data, which does happen, I end up pushed onto those services. Right. And you are in the city. So imagine someone in the rurality mm. or something like that, which I have to also say, um, I hate to rate it. I just spoke against that. But on the other hand, I do need to recognize that many people in the, in the rurality are using that and it works for them very well. Because for instance, they are much more lighter than Signal. If I tell somebody in the rurality to use Signal, uh, the problem is that quality of the internet is so bad that it works better. WhatsApp, they will send the message and eventually it will go. Signal, because it's more privacy oriented, it's a much heavier service and it doesn't work in everywhere. So I, I mean, I know there are trade-offs, but sometimes you still need to think that um, globality is about uh, a sum of many localities, localizations, local problems. And uh, therefore, regulation, company services, competition, it will impact differently in different places. Right. There are so many trade-offs and questions, particularly with Zero Rated, about whether we allow people in the global south or with less economic resources to have less freedom of expression and information than people with resources. You know, there have to be ways of counteracting those issues. But I want to move towards a, a more positive note to end on, or a more hopeful note, at least. What, what's the best case scenario for a regulated future? Obviously, using antitrust regulation and law in conjunction with, with other work, with human rights principles. What is our best case scenario here? Well, I, I think a good case scenario, I don't know whether I would say it's the best because time will tell, but a good case scenario would be where you have a regulatory dialogue between the regulators and these gatekeeping platforms so they, they can strike, so to speak, an agreement where these companies are not prevented from innovating, but at the same time are not abusing their powers in a way that's not good for society, that's not good for, for, for users. So uh, if, if they could come forward themselves and say, well, we now understand this is problematic and would you be happy with these kind of concessions? Instead of the regulators around the world have to drag them because regulation is, is different from antitrust in the way that you, you, you regulate across the market where you think there is systemic problems. Uh, uh, saying that we are regulating the digital economy is not is, is too much. I mean, these are these are, are a few companies, so this will be asymmetric regulation because we are not going after the entire digital economy. We are going after a few big companies, but entering into a regulatory dialogue with these to see if 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 we can meet in in, in a place that will benefit society as a whole, and I'm meaning end users here, consumers, as well as businesses, as well as allowing the companies to innovate. 
I think that would be a happy medium. And how do we motivate companies to enter into those discussions with goodwill, in good faith? Well, it should be in their own interest and it should, uh, you know, if, if I was the CEO of one of these companies, the reputational damage of not doing so is immense. And I would probably think that the good news story to the market and to shareholders will be to say that we are engaging, we understand, this is also in our interest to be the good guys. Mm. And of course, if that doesn't work, there is always the stick in the other end, the antitrust enforcement. But uh, if one could avoid that, then uh, uh, that would probably be a, a better outcome. So carrot rather than stick. <laughs> I, I hope that uh, the future looks a bit like what Lisa is saying, but of course that is something that from the Global South perspective might be a bit more further away um, because we do not have the same power. I, I would say that in Latin America, probably Brazil is the one that can push uh, regulatory impact. However, I believe that the fact that there has been more and more impacts and will bring more and more judges to the decisions. But I think this is, I'm not saying this is the ideal world. I think this is the realistic world in places like Colombia. It's going to be judges because what I've seen that goes through the Congress in places like Colombia are not good ideas. Mostly it is uh, driven by threats by, by fear rather than threats. It's fear what, what regulators start by thinking we have to protect children. But the way they think they are going to regulate companies is completely awful because there is less capacity, less resources to understand even how companies work. And we end up like having everybody trying to stop them from doing the regulations they imagine they can do. Uh, it will take time for regulators in countries like Colombia to understand how internet works, what they really can do, what they can't. Whereas judges defining a specific issues, it's going to be more the road. There will be bads and goods, of course, so with time we will know. So to wrap up by looking forward, how do we drive and enrich this debate at a global level? about bringing that proportionality that you mentioned, Lisa, to those powers, to those social media platforms that run so much of the way that we communicate and express ourselves? We do that by dialogue between the regulators around the world. Hmm. I think we're already good at that, uh, but we need to continually learn from each other, speak to each other, use cases, best practices, what are they doing in South America where we can learn from what they're doing? What are they doing in Asia where we can learn from what they're doing? Uh, you know, so, so I, I think it's all about, I mean, in Europe, we have, we have a lot of networks and, and we also have transatlantic networks. And I do think that, that the major jurisdictions around the world are in constant communication about that. So I think we need to continue that communication. And I think we need to, learn and then we need to have use cases i mean that that's probably uh, the way forward and if we can have instead of having divergence you know if we could agree because it is a global systemic issue so one continent or one jurisdiction may lose out 
if they have very stringent regulation and others don't follow suit, that will have a devastating impact on competitiveness. So, yeah, I think we we, we need to uh, engage. Mm-hmm. I wish I, I was so positive, um, but I'm not that positive. I think there's going to be a, a lot of pressures also because um, it is hard. It is hard to converge and I wish we could talk more among everyone. But the, the reality is that the speed of regulation is higher in the north, is slower in the south. And uh, we not just have these asymmetries from uh, with companies and the way they act and everything, but also even with juridical frameworks. The human rights juridical framework in Latin America and in general in the inter-American system is very different to the European. And in technology, you can see it. So the way, for instance, that Europe deals with privacy and the way Europe deals with uh, the right to be forgotten, for instance, uh, is something that for us in Latin America, it's very strange. There, at least there is a discussion that we would not like that kind of input. So uh, even involving everyone right now doesn't guarantee that we are listening everybody because the stage of development of technology implementation, use, and everything is different. For me, it will be um, the regulation of technology in Latin America. The ideal will be if we take again or or do a better analysis on the human rights framework that we have developed. The way that we can understand what in the North are doing to implement and localize it better. So it'll be an interesting road ahead but the stakes are pretty high. I think that's a great place for us to round off. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for inviting me. That's all from us today, but we hope you'll join us for episode three, Hope on the Horizon. We'll be talking about the new and ambitious plan to cut tech giants down to size, the EU's Digital Markets Act. I'll be talking to two experts on freedom of expression about the potential of this new law to change the landscape in Europe and further afield. So thanks for listening and until next time.